I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, all right. Well, then let's get right into it. Um, uh, we're joined today by Michael Barnett. Michael, why don't you? Uh, I'm sorry, Doctor Michael Barnett. Uh, uh, I guess we'll we'll start with the the stupid question that I typically ask most doctors that come on the show. Michael, are you a uh, a medical doctor or a or a smart person doctor? I'm a medical doctor, not the smart person doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Always love. I think they're both. But the answer, yeah, yeah. I mean, truly, it's a trick question. Compared to me, you're both. Um, uh, Michael, why don't you take a moment to introduce uh, yourself to our guests and give them a little bit of a rundown on uh, what kind of doctor you are and and where your line of focus has been over the last few years. Great. Yeah. So uh, my name is Michael Barnett. Um, I'm a primary care physician and a researcher um, at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health um, in their health policy and management department. So um, I practice primary care, but also most of my time I spend studying the um, healthcare delivery system in the US, trying to understand how we can um, uh, deliver care better and focusing on high risk um, medications uh, that physicians often prescribe like opioids or uh, medications we use to treat things like opioid use disorder, um, in addition to other medications like antibiotics or antipsychotic meds. Mm-hmm. Now, opioids uh, are something that that have sort of uh, come up on the podcast quite a bit over the last couple of years. Um, we've spoken to uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Mark Tyndall out in British Columbia about the opioid epidemic, uh, particularly here in Canada. And I know that um, the 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 problematic. Uh, use of opioids is kind of a problem that doesn't just exist here in Canada. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I would likely say the entire planet for the most part has a, has yeah. a problem, but really North America, there's like this, there's this crisis, the opioid crisis that I'm sure many people have heard of. Um, what, what's the situation currently in the U S um, with, with the use of opioids? I know that, recently we i think tay you had mentioned that like 2021 you had read has sort of been like an all-time high for opioid overdoses in the u.s yeah that was how i stumbled that was how i stumbled on a an article um that you were quoted in and um and it was and, and the topic of the article was addressing that 2021 was a record in opioid overdose deaths in the united states and uh that this is just a record that keeps on being broken every year and even among even amidst this public consciousness that seems mm-hmm. to have emerged over the last few years that the opioid crisis is indeed an epidemic that is you know killing thousands and thousands of people every year but yet the record continues to be broken every year 
So where, 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 where does this, where does this issue, where is this issue today? Yeah, it's a big, big question. Um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of layers to what's going on in the U S right now, but uh, you know, in a word, uh, the situation is bad right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there was a lot of celebration or maybe, you know, cautious celebration, say around 2018, there was that, you know, kind of hockey stick up going curve of overdose deaths. But in 2018, we saw the first year where things really didn't accelerate and kind of flattened out a little bit, actually. Mm. And, and I think experts like myself were like, oh, you know, maybe we're actually, you know, just, you know, just barely starting to make a little bit of progress. And then, um, as we learned in the middle of the pandemic, when the 2019 numbers came out, that actually that was just a fiction. Actually, in 2019, before the pandemic, things picked right back up again. Mm-hmm. So we went into the pandemic with an addiction crisis that was out of control, right? We, we, we weren't kind of getting our hands really around it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go into the pandemic and, um, you know, um, stuff hits the fan and it's no good. It's, it's, uh, um, and you know, we can, we can get into it in detail, but people, people feel worse. They have less financial resources. They have less access to treatment. Um, and, um, the drug supply just gets more and more dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. it's just a recipe for a perfect storm and disaster. What, what was the, when the, when it started to look like it was plateauing in 2018 a bit, um, what, like looking back at that now, is there reasons or can you tell why it sort of looked like things were maybe trending in a way that were better than before, but actually it ended up getting worse? Um, I don't know that, I don't think we have, you know, uh, very convincing evidence right now, exactly what, you know, parsing exactly why the trend is going in one direction or another. Um, part of it might've been that we're making a little bit of progress um, in terms of expanding access to drugs like buprenorphine. Um, but, um, you know, there could just have as easily been something just in the, maybe in the market for fentanyl itself that I and other researchers just aren't that aware of. There's some disruption, you know, because of the Mexican cartel. And so for just a short period, maybe there wasn't, there wasn't as much fentanyl um, uh, circulating, but researchers don't know about it because it's very hard to gather data on that kind of stuff. Right. What's the, what's the drug that you mentioned there that was a, that I'm, I'm assuming is a, is an alternative or something to treat um, a, a opioid addiction or dependence? Yeah, so I think the key thing to understand the overdose crisis in the U.S. right now is uh, this drug called fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. It's made in a lab. It doesn't come from a poppy. And um, it is, um, you know, many-fold, hundred-fold stronger than morphine. A very tiny amount is enough to make a lot of folks who don't have a huge tolerance um, enough to make them overdose. Um, And so part of the issue with the overdose crisis it's not necessarily, though we don't know for sure, it's not necessarily the case that the uh, population of people who are using opioids has just ballooned and expand exponentially, but it's a combination of that population growing and the injection drugs that they're using, which contain fentanyl, mm. are much deadlier than injection drugs in the past. Mm. So the likelihood of them dying or getting sick from using is higher than it's ever been. I looked into, uh, I was doing a, a lot of research on this, on this overall topic, uh, probably in the, in somewhere in the region of, uh, like eight or nine months ago. And, um, and, uh, some really interesting stuff came out. I was looking at, you know, the, the, I was looking at the situation that's currently going on. I was looking at some of the issues with, um, you know, uh, some of the manufacturers of, of, of opioids in the U S or, or around, the, around the world. I was also looking at 
the history of opioids and, and opiate, opiate derivatives and uh, sort of how, the, how, how we came from you know, morphine derived from a poppy to all the derivatives, uh, opi- opioid derivatives. And something that I came upon was this idea, which I, which I think it, you know, from like the most optimistic, um, good hearted, um, uh, position was that the, one of the reasons why we continue to, to manufacture these new, uh, opioids over the course of, you know, a hundred, 150 years is to try and keep the pain management benefit that an opioid provides and get rid of the addictive property. And that every iteration of an opioid was an attempt to, to, to take away the addictive property that, is in, that seems to be inherent in, in an opioid derivative. Do you think that that's, do you think that that's accurate? Like, is, the, is, it, is it a continuing search to get the pain benefit, the pain management benefit, but not have the addictive property? And the question here is, did they succeed in doing it, or is that goal something oh, I, worth I know, pursuing? Or? I, I know they didn't. I know. I know that they didn't succeed in doing it. Is it? Is it something that? Is it something that, from where you, from where you stand in your profession, does it seem like that? Is that accurate to say that that has been the attempt? Like, has there been, has there been that, um, like, concentrated effort? Are they always trying to take out the addictive property from an opioid derivative when it's being manufactured? I see. Well, yeah, I mean, so there are a number of opioids that have a reputation and it's, it's either from marketing or just, um, you know, medical lore that they are less powerful or less addicting than others. Um, certainly, you know, uh, milligram for milligram, opioids have different strengths from one another, um, but it's not clear that like, that's the thing that makes it addictive versus not. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'd say is that if... Everything the research has borne out is that largely these opioids are, are, are equivalent from a treatment perspective, as long as you're using a similar dose of one another. They probably provide a similar level of pain treatment to the extent that they do, and they probably carry you know, comparable risk of addiction. That's, it's not like it's so different as far as we know that we'd say, oh, you should never prescribe, you should never prescribe oxycodone because it's you know, 10 times more addictive than hydrocodone. Um, I don't think we really don't have data to speak to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I view them as largely interchangeable. And, you know, when I prescribe opioids, which of course I still do, um, I usually rely on kind of more kind of technical pharmacologic issues, like what's the half-life of this drug and what has this patient tolerated in the past and, you know, kind of more boring stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I in, think- in, in prescribing opioids your, yourself, um, how has, through the, the research and the work that you've done, how has your um, perspective or maybe thoughts changed on, uh, do you think about them differently when you prescribe them now than you might have when you first started? A great question, because actually I, I have traveled quite a journey um, intellectually in terms of the... Uh, relationship between my research and my understanding of this area and what I learned in medical school and how I prescribed. Mm. Um, you know, when I was a resident and also in medical school, I was very much taught that in some ways pain is like an opioid deficient state. 
the reason people suffer with pain that's out of control is because someone hasn't given them enough opioids, uh, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a little bit of an exaggeration, but only a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was an intern and a, a second year resident, I just noticed there were just so many patients that we ran into who were on you know, pretty high doses of opioids that we took every day, and they were miserable. And they also, there are lots of complications that, you know, uh, came up because of the high doses of opioids they were on, like side effects, where they ran out of the prescription too early, or there is, there is tension over whether they should get a refill now or then. It just, you know, and, and part of me asked myself, like, like, why are we doing this? Like, actually, what's, what's the evidence and how, um, you know, how did we get here? And so, you know, through my research, what I, what I learned was that a lot of the myths that, or rather a lot of what I had been taught and kind of the common wisdom in prescribing these were largely myths or unproven hypotheses um, mm-hmm. that likely got their, you know, likely originated in, um, you know, the genesis of pharmaceutical marketing of these products in the 90s mm-hmm. um, and have just, you know, just, just persisted with no one really questioning them for a long time. I, I, I really like this, uh, this line that, that you just opened up right with that, with this conversation around like prescribing and the conversation and the thought process around prescribing things and having, I've, I've been prescribed opioids before I was on, I, I got hit by a car, I broke my pelvis and I was on Dilaudid and I went home and I was, I was on IV Dilaudid or, or sorry, not IV Dilaudid, but, um, um, injection, um, Dilaudid in, in the hospital and then pill form at home. And, um, and what's something that I was, that I was really surprised about when I was prescribed, when I was given this prescription, um, when I was being written the script by the doctor and when I picked it up at the pharmacy, and I don't know whether this is a breakdown in one of those areas or not. And this is just a failure of, uh, you know, of a couple of people, but I was basically told nothing about the drug, what to expect, how to, how to come off of of that drug properly and effectively so as to avoid, you know, withdrawal symptoms or to avoid dependence. Um, and what does, I'm wondering from what that conversation looks like or should look like between a physician and a patient or a a pharmacist and a patient when that prescription is being, uh, passed on or being uh, filled at the pharmacy, um, when a patient is picking up an, an opioid prescription. Yeah, great question. And also, I, I think my um, I think my connection's a little bit wonky. Is everything okay with audio quality? Uh, yeah, the sound's coming through. You're just uh, your vi- it's just the video, but we don't use the video, so as long as the as long as we can hear you, it's fine. So so far so far so so good. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so um, so that's a great question, and I think. Um, it gets to a larger topic, uh, which we don't have to get into in too much detail, but uh, doctors, doctors are fairly poor at actually explaining the risks and benefits um, for any prescription, any new intervention they do. Um, I'd say maybe, maybe surgeons are the best at it because you know, if you're going to go in for surgery, it's a really big decision. You want to know everything about it. But for pre- prescribing a medication, which um, you know, sometimes can be as serious of a choice, um, honestly, as getting surgery, um, you know, there's a lot to understand to figure out if you're up for um, getting into what you're getting into. And opioids are often prescribed in short bursts for people who are, feeling, you know, feeling pretty bad. And so there's not like a lot of conversation that goes on around. It. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if there's one thing I've learned through all of this is that I do everything I possibly can to, um, to make sure my patients understand that 
you know, the reason we're using an opioid now is because other stuff hasn't worked mm. or we can't use it. And that, you know, and that the absolute start you down the road towards dependence um, is relatively low. Um, and so when I counsel a patient, I say it's relatively low. But on the societal scale, right, if likelihood someone exposed to an opioid might develop addiction that they otherwise wouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the second or third most prescribed drug class in America, right? Mm -hmm. A third of Americans get exposed to opioids every year, more or less. Whoa. And so you get 1% of that number and it's huge, kind of like the way, you know, kind of like the way we learned how in COVID, even if it's like a relatively small percentage of people that get hospitalized or die, that turns into like a huge societal, you know, society changing number. Yeah. Um, so part of this is also the difficulty in communicating kind of um, individual versus society level risk uh, with these medications, which uh, doctors are not well prepared for. And I think as, I think in general, we just, we just don't have great tools for it. Right. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. I, 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 those numbers are, are pretty, uh, pretty wild. And I know that, um, uh, stigma, stigma in the, in the medical system surrounding drug users is kind of a, kind of an issue. Um, and knowing that there's so many people being prescribed opioids over the span of a year, when it comes to the, the overdose, um, the overdose crisis, how, how does stigma play a role in that, um, in terms of, of kind of creating a barrier between, between, you know, where we are now and, 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 and finding some sort of resolve when it comes to the, the massive amount of overdoses that we're seeing every single year? Um, you know, I think some people, especially, you know, patient advocates, um, drug policy advocates can argue that the opioid crisis in many ways is a crisis of stigma, if mm. nothing else. And that concept has a lot of layers to it, uh, which I can try to unwrap a little bit to just give you a sense of why might it be, why is it not a crazy thing to say in a way this is a crisis of stigma? So, um, you know, of course, using injection opioids um, outside of a medical setting is illegal, right? And so, you know, that, that's, of course, one layer of stigma. Um, but um, that's not really, you know, that may not even be the most important layer of stigma. Um, one is that, um, you know, people who use injection drugs and develop addiction, um, there's, there's just so much shame and so much, and, and, and the, the, the implications of disclosing it to anyone, even if it's confidential, are, you know, can be so earth shattering for someone who's still in the, in the midst of everything um, that, um, you know, the incentive to seek care, there's just huge barriers there, right? We have medications, we have treatments that can reduce the risk of folks dying from overdose um, or, you know, or improving the likelihood they'll actually stay sober by 50% or more. 
Um, but the internalized stigma, the stigma from the outside world um, that you can get from family and friends, the, delegitimiz the, the delegitimization that comes from potentially disclosing that status and becoming more publicly known, um, right? I mean, that's, that's basically what pushes all of this into the shadows. And um, it's an enormous, you know, there's also lots of privacy laws around this. And not only that, right? So, so it's stigmatized at the level of the user, of course, but also for providers, it's also stigmatized, right? I learned nothing, next to nothing, about how to actually treat opioid use disorder when I was a medical student. And that's mm. still the case in many medical schools where addiction is viewed as somebody else's problem. There are addiction medicine doctors out there, but the treatment system for addiction, it's completely separate from the actual, you know, kind of quote unquote normal healthcare system. And that's because for a long time, addiction has been considered kind of this like quasi you know, moral illness, right? That you're that there's something wrong with you that you can't control, and um, mm -hmm. and it's there's sort of a criminality to it um, that you're that you're a bad person, and that's why we have this kind of separate vertical of addiction treatment that's not integrated with anything else. Mm -hmm. And so those are just a few of th those are just like just a few of the layers that you know we can start to unwrap. Is it? Um, it makes me wonder. It. Is there just like no good alternative? Because I think of opioids and I think, well, like these, you know, these drugs are obviously heavily stigmatized because of the addictive properties and what it can do to people and the overdoses that that uh, uh, sometimes and often result from these situations. But it seems like, you know, at the, other, at the same time, opioids are really great for treating pain. They can be a, a, a really excellent tool for physicians to prescri prescribe for pain management. But it seems like the question is like, is, is it just hard to find, is it possible to find something else that can do it better? Or is this something that we're just going to have to deal with and sort of work within this space to find a way to better communicate about the impacts of, uh, of misuse of opioids over time? It just, it feels like such a puzzle to me. Like it feels like. If I, I could like, tack on to the end of that question. Sure, yeah. That it, and what is the difference between the benefit of using an opioid for acute treatment of pain and chronic treatment of pain. And is that ever an appropriate prescription for chronic yeah. pain? Okay. Oof. Okay. A lot, of, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of content bundled in there. Okay. So let me, um, uh, so let me, let me tackle this. Um, Help us. So understand. <laughs> okay. Well, let me, let me deal, let me deal with the second part. Um, first. Sure. So this is the question of, you know, how effective are opioids versus the alternatives, right? For mm -hmm. either acute or chronic pain. The thing that, you know, is, is honestly still kind of mind blowing and people have a very hard time accepting it, um, even, among, even among clinicians, is that I swear to you, especially in acute pain, there has been no evidence so far that if you have a randomized trial, that the pain control from opioids exceeds what you can get from, from Advil you can buy over the counter. No. Wow. No okay. way. And so, so, so people, people have a very hard time believing, but they've tried it in, in fracture, in acute back pain, in wisdom tooth extraction, um, in kidney stones, Whoa. all, all of these, all these indications, and there's multiple trials also post-surgery, all of these indications, basically, it seems like you can dial back opioids almost to zero or to zero and maintain the ibuprofen and your pain control is equivalent. Wow. Now, Whoa. There's a, there's a, there are a couple things to say about that. Some people take that information to say, oh, that means opioids don't work. The answer is no, they absolutely work. However, we have this 
actually kind of miraculously effective pain treatment that's relatively safe, that's actually available over the counter. And we take for granted how powerful it is. You know, ibuprofen and its analogs are actually pretty amazing drugs. Um, and so, and there are a lot of people out there who can't take ibuprofen, right? If you have any kidney mm -hmm. disease, you really need to stay away from it. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever had a history of, you know, um, of bleeding in your GI tract from your stomach, things like that, there are a lot of people that can't take it. And then you really can't default that first. Mm. Um, so, so that's one thing is that opioids, they're just not better. All right. They still need to be used, but there's no reason to think they're like the good stuff when it comes to acute pain, which mm. is culturally kind of a hard thing to accept, but the evidence, you know, again and again, it just doesn't bear it out. Mm -hmm. Is there, is there a placebo effect on it? We did an episode before on placebo effect and I was blown away with how powerful placebo can be. Is yeah. there, do you think that there's an impact on like what people believe the difference in opioid, uh, an opiate will provide in treating like an acute mm. pain like that, that, that maybe helps it feel like it does more. Yeah. So I've always, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the one who's going to be able to do this, but I've like, I've always dreamed about doing this trial where you have three arms, you give someone, you know, uh, a sugar pill or ibuprofen or an opioid. And then in each of those arms, you tell the person they're getting one of the three arms. So if you got placebo, there's an arm where you tell them they got ibuprofen and there's an arm where you tell them they got an opioid. And if you got ibuprofen, there's an arm where you tell them you got nothing and you tell them you got an opioid. And that way you could really separate out like how much of a placebo effect is the expectation of an opioid versus actually receiving it itself. Right. No, no one's, no one's done, no one's done that study. And so I really can't tell you how much of a placebo effect the expectation of an opioid causes, but it could be pretty significant. Wow. Um, but what I can tell you is that whatever combination of I might be getting an opioid or not anticipation, if you just combine that with actually giving them you know, ibuprofen alone, right, you get basically um, a similar level of pain control mm -hmm. and um, expectations certainly could be a part of it. Um, it's, it's so interesting because I, uh, I, I pulled my muscle in the, in the gym the other day and I took an ibuprofen after and I, I usually don't buy ibuprofen and I, and I don't really, in my mind, it really doesn't do that much for me. Um, but I took it and, you know, didn't really notice, but it, it did certainly make me feel better for a period of time. Um, uh, but now that you just said that, I feel like the new placebo effect in my brain is like, <laughs> this drug is really powerful. And now, well, I mean, <laughs> now I think it will yeah. probably notice a bigger impact. <laughs> I mean, I have two little kids, right. And, you know, they, they were babies not that long ago. And I think, I think any parent of young children can like, can testify to like the miracle of ibuprofen that you can just have right. this miserable, miserable, you know, like you know, feverish or sore, achy kid who's just, mm. you know, cannot, like they can't stop crying. You give them, you give them some ibuprofen or Tylenol and suddenly they're fine again. Ooh, and awesome. there's, so, you know, look, I, I have, I have no commercial stake in either of these things. It's just <laughs> that those, it's just that those are, those are actually really good medications in a variety of settings and opioids are definitely can be an adjunct. And for some people um, it's what they, you know, they don't respond to those drugs and they need opioids. Um, but it's by no means a default. It's by no means a default that gives you um, that gives you something better. Mm -hmm. And for chronic pain, the situation, as far as we can tell, is largely the same. Um, though chronic opioid therapy comes with a lot of baggage, um, such that a lot of people think of it as sort of irrevocably inferior to using any other chronic pain. But it's a very complicated topic. There's there's a lot of kind of clinical nuance and who might be appropriate for chronic opioid therapy, because there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people still on chronic opioid therapy who actually do pretty well. Um, but there are also many who don't do well at all. There was somebody who I was, uh, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and, um, 
uh, this guy named David Nutt out of the UK, um, who is like a prominent psychopharmacologist, and they were kind of covering topics on all drugs, but they 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 touched on on opioids for a section of the conversation, and some and they were talking about I can't remember what the medical term is for developing tolerance, um, but they were talking about the difference in um, the difference specifically in drugs like ibuprofen or Tylenol, where you know if you can if you take uh, if you take X amount of ibuprofen or Tylenol the effect that that same dosage of ibuprofen or Tylenol will continue to be relatively the same over time. Mm. Whereas with an opioid, your tolerance develops and you need to take more Mm. and you need to take more. And so is that, is that something that is really heavily considered in terms of like chronic opioid prescription that, that somebody will, will, will need more of the same drug over time to, to get the same desired effect that the drug has. Um, yeah, so that so that's one of the most um, that is one of the most problematic issues around using chronic opioids for pain control. It's also um, why this so you know there's this concept called pseudo addiction, and um, I actually was taught about pseudo addiction in medical school. And at one point, I like wasn't sure if maybe I was like fabricating that memory or something. And so I went back through some of my old notes and my residency handbooks and stuff. And there it was in my residency pain management handbook for like new interns. There was like pseudo addiction, like a page on pseudo addiction. And it's basically a made up concept by by people at Purdue. And um, the idea behind pseudo addiction is that some people who are on chronic pain therapy, they may come to you and look like they have symptoms of addiction, but actually you just haven't given them enough opioid and their pain is out of control. Whoa. And um, and you, you know, in, in retrospect, it seems a little ridiculous because like, if you have, you know, symptoms of addiction mean going to lengths to obtain a substance or, or thing that otherwise is detrimental to your health, life, safety. Um, and that's a bad thing, whether or not it's because you have chronic pain or because you're starting to develop a true clinical addiction. But, um, the, the issue is that there's a bad history of people on chronic opioids kind of being escalated to ludicrously high doses, in part because there was this concept that, um, you know, people who were doing poorly on a given dose, sometimes what they just need is a higher dose. Mm-hmm. And, and so, it, so we have a lot of people who ended up being on really, really high dose um, opioids, uh, certainly, you know, um, several years ago. But um, it's not... Um, it, it's it's not destiny, right? Like there are people who can be on the same dose of opioid and maintained on that for a very long time, and they do fine. And that's not everybody. And um, you know, everyone's going to develop at least some version of tolerance, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're destined to have to need an escalating dose no matter what. But um, one of the things that um, is the surest red flag for me if I'm trying to use opioids and it's actually the the, the course is extending longer than I want is I'm very cautious now about kind of just reflexively increasing a prescription as opposed to taking stock of like, where were we two months ago? How much higher Mm -hmm. are we? How fast are we increasing? Am I actually helping this person by increasing their dose or have we maxed out our utility of opioids and we need to do something else? That's so, that's so interesting because I, I imagine I'm thinking of like relationships with patient, um, and medical practitioner relationships where like patient, patient physician relationships where, um, if I go and see my doctor and I tell him that I have something wrong with me and he pres- prescribes me some medication, 
there's probably very little thought process, at least from his perspective of like how I've responded to that medication after I started to take it. And maybe I come back three or four months later and follow up with them and sort of tell him how I feel after I've taken it. But to, to that extent, I feel like there's, he probably hasn't really thought much about me and how I'm doing in that time that I haven't been in, in the office. He probably just prescribed it and let me go. Well, I mean, especially but, in our, in our, in our system where a, a family doctor has, you know, a, th- a 3000 yeah, patients. Right, yeah. And, but then I think of like, you know, Jer with cystic fibrosis who has like the same team of doctors who, you know, are, are tracking and, and, and measuring how he's affected by different drugs and how his cystic fibrosis is affecting him over time. They probably have a better understanding of how the drugs are working for him and, you know, how his health is progressing over time. Definitely. But I'm curious, um, Dr. Barnett, from like a, a physician perspective who prescribes opiates, um, do you feel like you, because you, you mentioned there that like, it's obviously really important to monitor how an individual patient ex- is, is experiencing the effects of the drug. Do you feel like for the most part, from your perspective, that that you have a good understanding of how people are responding to that that drug? Is it possible for a physician to have that relationship where they like really know how this individual is being affected by the opioid that they're being prescribed? Um, yeah, so, I, you know, it depends on the situation. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know your PCP and you know, the Canadian health system has its own challenges, um, but, you know, I think a lot does go on behind the scenes. So you might be surprised by kind of how much thought your doctor does put into whether or not, you know, the right, they've done the right thing and how you're doing. Um, even if like, even if like there's kind of nothing on your end that you see, he's kind of Um, like a curmudgeon, like Scrooge like character though, too. So like, like maybe that's just how I paint him in my mind, even though he's probably really empathetic behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, for, you know, because we are, because we are so busy and, you know, we can't at least, you know, for a PCP that's seeing the equivalent of 3,000 patients a year, you just simply don't have enough minutes in the year per patient to really deal with the kind of back and forth that would be, um, you know, that I think the average person would kind of like to have the option of uh, communicating with their doctor, that they could like text them back and forth or just like mm-hmm. check in or something, mm-hmm. um, right? And that, that's because, you know, you know, in the Canadian and the American healthcare system, the kind of minutes of time allocated per doc, per patient in primary care is just a pittance compared to what right. people, I think, think they deserve and should deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that all being said, what, what, you know, when I prescribe often what I do is, you know, if it's a relatively minor issue, I think neither me nor the patient are particularly scared or anything. But um, if a patient is like in true misery, you know, I honestly, you know, every month I see someone with back pain who's just, they're just floored, you know, like, you know, back pain is one of the most common things we see. And sometimes it's really annoying. And sometimes it's just like devastatingly painful. Yeah. And, um, you know, I will, I'll tell that person, like, here's the initial regimen. Here's my plan for you right away. It's the, you know, the evidence says this is as good as anything else. And I want you to be in touch with me in a couple of days, or we'll be in touch in a couple of days and see how you're doing. And if you're really, really miserable, like tell me, because we'll have to, you know, we'll need to switch your regimen. Mm-hmm. And occasionally people actually get better pretty quickly and they're fine. I don't really need to hear back from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but then other times, you know, it's an intense back and forth to figure out how can we get this person's pain under control? Um, and it can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Earlier, you, earlier, you you had mentioned how um, there's like these huge gaps in the in the addiction treatment um, system in the U.S. Um, what is what's the state of of like harm reduction um, in the U.S. right now? Like, are there are there some states that are um, quite progressive and and pushing forward in a way that others aren't? I know that 
here in, in, here in Canada, you know, we see a lot of like, um, a lot of really seemingly effective harm reduction, uh, uh, steps being taken in, in provinces like British Columbia. Um, what, what is, what is the state of, of harm reduction in, in the U S right now? And, and, you know, what are your hopes for, for that, that side of things? So, um, I'd say, you know, harm reduction has a promising amount of momentum, especially now since I think the Biden administration, I think is the first administration to truly and um, explicitly endorse clear concepts of harm reduction, you know, by name. Um, that's very encouraging because I, I think we've never had endorsement on the federal level like that. Um, but I'd say on a bigger, on an even bigger scale, that harm reduction, you know, we, there's still a lot of work to do because mm. of stigma, right? So there are the default understanding, I'd say, the average member of the public is that people who are using, people with opioid use disorder who are using injection drugs on the street do not deserve our sympathy. Mm. They do not deserve additional services. They, you know, actually they should be going to jail. We have a very correctional framed um, system that is about abstinence and, you know, if you're a good person, you're just going to stop using and suffer and get through it. And um, uh, um, versus the harm reduction approach, which is a very different way of thinking about it. It's gaining, I think, a pretty strong foothold in the medical community. Um, but, you know, I think in my bubble, it's easy to think that, you know, everything is sort of, you know, um, switching over to harm reduction pretty quickly. But I think that on the national scale, we have a lot of work to do. And in general, there's not an expectation that people with an opioid use disorder deserve to have what we call opioid agonist therapy or buprenorphine or methadone, which are um, medications that act like opioids, but help people get back to a normal life. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to um, thinking of addiction treatment as abstinence therapy, which is basically you have to grit your teeth and through a few different interventions, just not use, even and though we're going to ask you to go back to the environment that you used to live in and you'll be surrounded by users or surrounded by stresses and um, and um, um, triggers for using, and somehow you have to resist all of that for the rest of your life. And to go through, and to go through a significant period of withdrawal, which is an illness in and of itself, right. that is uh, a hell. I mean, I, I've I experienced withdrawal symptoms for twenty four hours after a after a Dilaudid prescription, and I had Dilaudid pills left. And the the reason that I wanted, I didn't. I didn't take any of the other Dilaudid pills, but I looked over at the bottle and thought, if I just take one of those, this will stop. Mm. And, and like, and that made me, that really made me reframe the way that I think about people who are dealing with addiction to opioids and the symptoms that they, that they go through and suffer through when in the absence of ha having um, having that drug in their system. But then you went on and sold them for, yeah. for an, an exorbitant amount of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you're, you're such a hypocrite. Because you know, I'm a capitalist. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I wanted I wanted to ask, you're just, you just sort of mentioned um, other factors around that sort of uh, can, can lead to uh, somebody potentially um, getting addicted to opioid, uh, opiates. And I'm wondering like, uh, systemically, are you seeing other factors that are that sort of lead to a, a higher likelihood of somebody getting addicted to opioids? And are those factors being addressed right now? I think one of the things that jumps to mind to me is like is like homelessness. Like, does mm. that you know sort of lead to uh, a higher likelihood of somebody becoming addicted to opioids? 
Um, great question. Also very, very complex. Um, right. There's there's a lot of ideas um, and and concepts out there about what does what 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 does and does not predispose to addiction. Um, but the extent to which those factors are reversible or the extent to which addressing those factors will will address addiction is is still murky though there's very strong emotions on both sides mm-hmm. um, I think I think homelessness is a is, is a um, is a great example where there's probably a, a, a relationship both ways between people who have opioid use disorder are much more likely to become homeless or people who become homeless are probably also exposed to an environment where there's availability and the kind of you know existential and um, psychiatric you know um, um, crisis that can you know lead people to say yeah you know why not um, or maybe they've used in the past but now it's just always there and so so it it, mm-hmm. be, it becomes kind of a negative spiral so I think there are a lot of simplistic interpretations out there about you know the causality going one direction or another but it's clear that um, homelessness and addiction do go hand in hand. And that part of the solution to the opioid crisis is also dealing with the housing crisis that we see in a lot of cities. Mm. You know, I live in Boston and we're struggling with this right now where there's like a huge tent encampment in the city and, um, you know, people don't really know what to do with it. Um, and I'd say, you know, kind of managing the stigma and community expectations for how we manage people with addiction and with drug use is kind of like one of the last, it's kind of like one of the last bastions in for where like even progressives aren't sure kind of like how to think progressively and, and actually deal with this because nobody wants them in their backyard. This is like the, this is like the, the um, kind of most fundamental example of nimbyism, not in my backyard, mm-hmm. right? Everyone, you know, there are a lot of people who would say like, oh yeah, you know, I have pity for people with addiction and we should offer services and blah, blah, blah. But then if you say, well, what if we open a safe injection site two blocks away? Or what if we what if we build housing for what if we build housing for the homeless affordable housing, you know, within half a mile of your place? They're going to say absolutely not, right? Mm-hmm. They're fine supporting it until it actually threatens their real estate or their bottom line. Yeah. And so it's a very so it's, so it's very intractable politically, um, even though we know some of the roots of this crisis that make it so hard to address. Mm-hmm. There was actually a really good. It wasn't on opioid use, but on public housing and homelessness. Mm-hmm. A piece that Johnny Harris did with uh, the New York Times. That did it's really interesting. It's really uh, interesting. It's and it's also really personal for me too. My uncle uh, was uh, addicted to uh, oxycotton for uh, many years. He's since passed away, but um, it, I I understand the personal conflict with wanting to support that issue. But there was a time when when I was living with my mom and we were talking about like whether or not we were going to let him live with us. And it's a family member that we obviously love and care about who has this addiction, who's struggling, who doesn't have a place to live. And, you know, we were talking about like whether or not we had the capacity to support him in our home. And it's like a, yeah. it's a really hard question to ask yourself. Like you, you want to support the issue, but like, then do you even bring a family member who's suffering from that type of addiction that you're, you don't have the capacity to support yeah. them into your home? into your home it was uh, it's a lot really easier tough. it's a lot easier to 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 see to say how you feel about an issue when it remains theoretical in your mind rather mm-hmm. than you know tact, tact uh, tactile or material right in front of you yeah yeah you know, a lot of a lot of people with addiction certainly those with homelessness right have estranged probably most of the people that they know or yeah, else yeah. they wouldn't have been in that situation yeah. and i think that you know that estrangement and our lack of a social safety net is part of or at least having very weak social safety net is, is part of the predicament um, that we're stuck in. 
And uh, stigma plays into this as well, which is that, um, you know, I think, um, you know, the average person out there with a family member who struggles with addiction, you know, they're at their wits end. And I think it's been hard, it, you know, it's very hard for them to think of the illness that they suffer as, you know, not having an important component of personal responsibility. And at a certain point, you know, they just can't handle it anymore. And we don't have resources in that, we don't have resources for people who have family members with addiction to help support them. And people go to such desperate measures really to help. And, you know, I've done a lot of research on the residential um, opioid treatment system in the US. And I think, you know, these are centers that I think largely prey on families that mm -hmm. are hoping to, you know, um, kind of um, have a transformational epiphany uh, for their family member, um, but they don't actually use the evidence-based approach to do so. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's, it's a very big mess, right? Like it's, this is hard to fix. In a more in a more hopeful or optimistic way, like what are from your research, what are some of the things that you see that could really positively affect the landscape of the opioid epidemic over the next five years? Yeah, so um, there are so there are good things that are going on, even if we have sort of deep structural issues um, that we need to maintain. And also, we haven't even talked about race, you know, which is I just yeah, I just want to make sure yeah. we I just want to make just get in there that um, um, I think you know it could be next year or the year after. I think that opioid overdose rates among black Americans is going to surpass that of white Americans. And so it's really, it's really shot up um, enormously. And this used to be something where there's actually a huge gulf in that white Americans have had, you know, two, three times the overdose rate of blacks. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's also, you know, this could soon be like an even, an even stronger racial um, uh, tinged um, uh, uh, racially, uh, racially complicated labor to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but on, on, the, on the topic of what's hopeful, so one thing that's really great is that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about it, but I'm, I'm an enormous proponent of the drug buprenorphine, which, is also, which also often goes by the uh, brand name Suboxone. And this is an oral medication. You can pick it up at a pharmacy. And um, it, um, um, many people with opioid use disorder who can take buprenorphine, it's basically an opioid that prevents cravings and kind of, you know, clicks in that part of the brain that would otherwise be seeking out opiates no matter what. And it just lets them live without having, without feeling the need to seek out, or at least greatly reducing the need uh, to feel, uh, to seek out um, drug use that can be detrimental to their lives. Wow. So and it's just, it's just, it's just targeting, it's just targeting the craving, the craving aspect for, for like continued opioid use. Is that what you mean? Yeah. So um, here's one way to think about it, right? So using fentanyl or heroin, right? It's like a huge rush, right? It's a quick rush, like literally directly into your veins of opioids. Mm -hmm. It like floods your brain in kind of warm fuzziness. Um, but then it's gone pretty soon. And you'll go into withdrawal if you don't get, get it again, like within hours. Buprenorphine, on the other hand, is, um, is you know, super stable, like 12 to 24 hours, just gives you a stable dose of opioids. It's just kind of always there. You don't have this roller coaster of ups and downs. If you keep taking your medication on schedule, you're not going to withdraw. Um, and um, you know, if you're really motivated and kind of are able to create an environment to actually um, avoid problematic use, then that actually can really um, help focus you away, focus your brain away from the opioid um, seeking part of your life because your brain it's 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 dealt with, it's satisfied. Methadone does the same thing, by the way. It's a more powerful opioid, um, but it's but it's it's just a super stable dose. And if you take it, your brain it just shuts down that part of 
in your brain that's going to constantly be flashing like i want this i want this i want this mm. um and would that be given as like a as a as a progressively as like a weaning protocol uh for for eliminating the dependence on on those stronger opioids or how how would it be how how would it be in a perfect world um uh put into action so that so the harm reduction philosophy, the way to think about these drugs is that opioid use disorder is a chronic relapsing condition, and um, it only goes into remission. It's, it's not cured, right? Like depression mm. or anxiety or mm. um, bipolar disorder, right? Mm. Like a lot of mental illnesses. And buprenorphine or methadone are very, very good at putting opioid use disorder into remission for the right people in the right time. Um, some people may desire to get off of methadone or buprenorphine, but for most people, it's something they probably are going to be better off maintaining indefinitely. Mm. And that as far as we can tell, people do better as long, the, the longer they're on it, right? Certainly it's, it's, you know, certainly there are people who really want to kind of go true abstinent, go truly abstinent and not have any other opioids in their system. But but the clinical evidence says that it's perfectly fine to be on buprenorphine or methadone for years or decades. Wow. And that's actually probably the safest thing to do. And there's no stigma. There's no clinical, there's no clinical shame in that being the treatment course, mm. even, even by default. Is that, um, and are those people who are on that uh, chronically, do they experience any like, you know, altered state of mind or consciousness i guess i don't know how to ask that question probably but like no, they can don't. they they can basically just go and you know Live their be lives. a regular contributing yeah. member of society Operate a motor vehicle yeah, yeah like do, do their yeah, daily yeah. tasks yeah. yeah there needs yeah there needs to be more study there needs to be actually more study of this but they are one once they're once they're on a stable dose so i mean you could give them too much methadone or too much buprenorphine sure and yeah. then they'll be kind of loopy or constipated and kind of not feel right mm. but once you find a stable dose that basically shuts down that craving part of the brain but is otherwise kind of you know they don't really feel a whole lot that's yeah. a dose where they can function just like a regular person yeah um, Man, that is that except is a... that they're on this medication that has you know interactions and other considerations like you know, other medications. Too. That's a I massive light bulb moment. Yeah. For me. I think it's really interesting to look at, um, to look at the, the, uh, oh, sorry, you've used the term a, a, a bunch of times now, opioid use, uh, um, disorder. disorder of looking at it through the lens of, of the same lens as you would look at a mental illness as like depression, yeah. and anxiety, like the way that you framed that was definitely, like, you know, I've, I've taken a step to the side and now I'm looking at it from a different perspective for sure. From, yeah. from that, from, from the way that you frame that, um, something that I wanted to, uh, to ask, we're, we're, we're coming up to, to, uh, to time here, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the, the thing that has, that has, I think brought a lot of attention to this issue to the average person in North America is the, the kind of like tsunami of, of uh, lawsuits that have come against uh, opioid manufacturers um, and distributors across the U.S. and the you know the billions and billions of dollars that they're being ordered to 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 pay um, in in a myriad of different ways. But I know that in a lot of these cases, there are funds that are earmarked in these settlements for um, for treatment programs for people that are suffering with opioid use disorder. And I'm I'm wondering um, I'm wondering if you know what what sort of programs are those, will those be, 
Um, and, and what kind of impact do you think that will have on the, I guess, like the immediate future of the opioid crisis, which I would see as like the next three to five years? Um, yeah, so great question. Um, of course, I'll acknowledge that I am an expert witness in a couple of these cases against opioid manufacturers in the U.S. Um, but thinking about what we do with these funds, it's something that's, you know, kind of a much broader question. Um, you know, one basic thing is that, you know, what we can do depends on how much these settlements are for, right? And, um, un you know, unfortunately, it, it seems like we are caught in this cycle of appeals and um, um, and stalling tactics. And it's it's not clear when a significant amount of this money is actually going to materialize. So right. I think that timing matters too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if it takes five years for something exceeding a billion dollars to finally become available, you know, like that's, that's going to be a very different impact than if somehow we were able to magically um, settle for um, billions of dollars in a organized way right now. But assuming that we are able to access that money through, you know, faster moving court cases, there are all sorts of things that we can do. Um, you know, I'm a co-author on a report where we, um, you know, like a 90 page report where we itemize the evidence and the kind of, um, um, uh, strategies that states or other governments, public health agencies could invest in with this money. And it's the stuff that we've talked about, right? It's, it's things like harm reduction um, strategies, like distributing naloxone, which is an overdose antidote, mm -hmm. or, um, or going as far as having safe injection sites. It's um, investing in a number of different treatment models to expand access to medications like buprenorphine or methadone, either by hiring more clinicians or giving the programs bigger budgets to reach more people. Um, Another part which we haven't which we haven't touched on yet, but is actually really important, is also uh, treating opioid use disorder in the criminal justice system, right? So by far the default right now is someone with opioid use disorder who's actively using that get that goes into incarceration, which is very common, of course. Um, a large proportion of the incarcerated population has opioid use disorder. They get nothing, and they have to go through withdrawal. Um, and um, when they leave jail or prison the likelihood of them overdosing is kind of this, this massive multiplier higher, yeah. like 25 to 40 mm. times higher overdose risk mm. than other uh, than other individuals because they've lost all their tolerance, right? right? But they're desperate to use and they and they go back to their old habit. Right. It's like um, Jean-Michel uh, Basquiat uh, died for the same reason. I right. Who that is. Uh, an artist. They, he dated Madonna. He was... Uh, he worked with Andy Warhol. Okay, really cool guy. Good, so, good, good um, guy. But but that's another place. So, but that's another place that governments can invest is actually creating um, any infrastructure in the criminal justice system to help bridge people um, with addiction to getting treatment once they're discharged from jail or treating them within jail, um, all, all or you know, jail or prison. You know, all sorts of options there. So you know, I think those are those are just a few of the things on the menu. And um, I'm worried that the settlement money will be a small fraction of what's necessary to accomplish this, even in one state. Right. Mm, right. Well, Dr. Burnett, I got to say, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and, and talk to us about this. Uh, it really, really does mean a lot. Mm. Right. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. 
It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stieber, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin, and Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.